So um, I, I really wanted to start by discussing some of the reactions we've seen for the Lady in the Dale. And, you know, it's been widely acclaimed by critics and viewers have really heralded it as a docuseries that is really an, a necessary unearthing of queer and trans history. And so a lot of the reviews grab viewers in by focusing on Liz as a con artist first and a trans woman second, which um, was very surprising to us. So first, what are your thoughts on the specific focus of Liz? And second, we know that Liz's transness was not the genesis for this project, but how vital is it to be able to rectify the history told of Liz in the past and provide some trans history that has usually been erased throughout time? Wow, thank you for those questions. <laughs> um, I think everybody sees Liz through the filter or lens of their own experience of their own bias and it's always fascinating to engage with those disparate perspectives and opinions and it's just been a joy honestly to read all of the reviews to, to talk to people I'm most interested in the people who are in the docuseries like the people who are in front of the camera and what they think and Nick can attest as well to um our consciousness of Liz's daughter of Liz's family of their lives having been so impacted by transphobic representations of Liz in her lifetime um so often trans people themselves are vulnerable to trans misogyny like Liz was but in Liz's case it was also this family structure, her kids, her grandkids, they were all impacted by this legacy of transphobia in the media. And um, that's been cathartic to witness. And I know Nick, Nick can speak to that as well. To speak to their family reaction and how it, I can certainly speak to them not wanting to, to talk to me or anyone else for years. <laughs> I mean, that was really difficult. It was, you know, I it, it took, I guess you'd use the term continuous action in terms of everyone in the family, mostly the grandchildren, um, to Jerry Bouchard and Nathan Michael, and uh, Jerry Bouchard being Liz's granddaughter, Nathan Michael being Candy's son, who, and um, and Morgan Petty, who, which is uh, Charles Richard Barrett's niece. And all three of them were really pressuring everybody above them to, to do this story because nobody had talked about it. And so a lot of that they had to overcome that hurdle of of all the bad reporting that had gone on. I mean, every time it felt like every new decade, it would just be the same stuff every time, the same transphobic stuff or same regressive stuff over and over. So it took a long time. I, I mean, it took conversations, a lot of conversations with Jerry Bouchard to say like, this is what we're trying to do. And, you know, and because I was a, a screenwriter and I wasn't a journalist per se, I was like, no, I don't, I don't have any interest in, in, in any of this angle or anything like that. To me, it was a lot of trying to prove that this stuff was real because that's a, mm. that's a great story. If, if all of these things are true about Liz's attempts to, I mean, there was no doubt in my mind she was a trans woman, but it was really about the, it was really about the construction of the car being a redemptive act and all that. But, but it really became an issue of, of trying to get over that hurdle essentially. And I think once, once we, we broke ground, I think got in there, it, it became much more accessible as to, as to Liz's story. And once we got Charles, 
Charles Barrett and Candy's interview, I think it became a lot easier to construct that narrative. So I think- And, um, and possible to see Liz as, as, a, as a human, yeah. as a family member. Yeah. It like really humanized Liz, I think, uh, with your documentary. I agree completely. And I think something that, um, you know, that I want to follow up with is something that um, I'm really curious, Nick, you know, you know, all these conversations that you had with the family through, you know, the history of like over 10 years of really trying to, you know, build that rapport with the family. You know, um, I'd love to hear a little bit more detail about how you were able to do that because you spent such a great deal of time, you know, really gaining their trust, really helping them understand, you know, what this project is about and, you know, finally getting some, you know, secondhand first person accounts of, you know, Liz as a person and her family. And so what do you think really caused them to finally open up and really share their stories of themselves and for Liz? And, you know, not that we can blame them for being so hesitant because of what you just mentioned and what we witnessed in the docu-series about their experiences with the media in the past. I mean, all, I think all that credit goes to Jerry Bouchard, Nathan Michael, and Morgan Petty. I mean, they can, I know Jer, when I talked to Jerry Bouchard, she said, you know, it was, it was like, I trust you, so maybe my family can trust you. And I think because Jerry Bouchard and I were the same age, I think that made it a little bit easier to have those conversations. And but even up until what, October, November, I don't even remember what it was, you know, Candy did still, despite all the years of doing this, Candy did not want to do that interview. She did not want to do it. And so she, and a lot of it was me getting on the phone with Nathan and being like, we need to do this, man. You know, this is like, this is that important because Candy really was the only one who could tell Liz a story. And, and Candy kept saying one of her biggest reasons was this isn't my story to tell. And, and a lot of the conversations with, as I understand it, Nathan's conversations with Candy were, you're the only person who can tell this story. Because of all, out of all the children, there's only three left. And because it, nobody at that age was old enough to be able to experience everything the way Candy did. So it really was down to her to, to tell that story. And, and I give all the credit in the world to Nathan Michael, all the credit and to Blue Dale to Nathan Michael, because there was, he, he really had a conversation with her and said, this is, this is that important. And if you don't tell this story, it's going to die. And that was effectively how it was. And, and see, we're very, very grateful that, that Candy agreed to do that interview. And, but it ultimately was a lot of, I, I think, I think maybe the years of doing it helped of all those years, but I don't think that they, I think at the end of the day, it came down to Nathan having that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so then how has your vision uh, for the series, for the documentary changed from when you first um, discovered um, Liz Carmichael on that episode of Unsolved Mysteries, if you don't mind asking, how's like, yeah. how's your journey been from when you first saw that to where we are now? Um, I think I, I, I because I'm, I'm a screenwriter, I think it was easier for me to come at it from a sense of like, I remember I used to, I would tell people at the beginning, they would be like, well, they, people would say to me, this isn't real. None of this was real. Mm -hmm. Like she never built that car. And I'd be like, you don't get it. Like it's a better, it's a better story. She's a better, more humanized character. If, if, if she's really attempting to build it. And like, there was, again, there was no, I just accepted right away that she was a trans woman. That never was ever, mm -hmm. that never came up ever. Once I saw the episode, I was like, great. She's a trans woman. Let's move, let's move forward. 
And, um, but everything you ever read was that it was fake, fake, fake. And for mm -hmm. the first, I can't even remember, it's all kind of a blur. The first four, five, six years, it was like, I couldn't find, I mean, I found some articles, but every, you kept running into the same five people who were like, who kept saying, well, we don't really know much. And, you know, it, it's, you were always finding outsiders who didn't know anything. And they would just give you the same pieces of information. All the articles kept saying fake, 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 fake. That's all it was. And so, I mean, it really, and Zachary knows, cause I've, I've bored Zachary to tears at this story over and over again, but it really took like, I, I thought I was done with this project because I couldn't get anywhere with it about five years because everything was so insular and there was so few, so there's so little material on her. And then what happened was, is this eBay auction landed in my lap and it, and it was like the entire trial was scrapbooked. There were names of different people. I mean, it really broke everything open. So when I started to meet with people, it completely flipped. And once I saw, I was able to get a hold of one of the engineers who had blueprints and development charts and had all these pictures. And like, once you had like all of that, it completely, I, I mean, it really grounded everything in this real way where I, I immediately was like, oh, the Dale is the heart and soul of Liz Carmichael. Like, and I, once I could see everything, I knew that this was really important it was her story became really important because you don't know you have someone who's a career criminal and you don't, you really don't know. Like if, but I always had it in mind that this was real and I thought it's a better story if it's real. And, and once I saw everything, it became very important to me at that point where I was like, we, we gotta, we, stupidly or not, I was like, Oh, I could do this. I could, I could change this, this history, you know? And I, and I remember saying to somebody, I was like, if I can pull this thing back from the hands of the Reaper, like, that'd be the coolest thing I ever did in my life would be like, yoink, <laughs> to be like, you know, this is, this is going to be gone and then you can pull it back. And, and, and that was really cool. But a lot of those, a lot of stuff I really discovered from 2015 to 18 was like, I think, I think I discovered about half of what's in that series from 2016, I think to 18 because of that eBay auction. And it really just, it really flipped it from, I don't know to this is everything in the world now because this is really the story is that important. And once I saw it on that level, I think it mattered a lot to me because I like stories. I like redemptive stories and mm -hmm. I like, you know, and also it's like, it's a tragedy too. It makes it, it makes it more of like, I don't know, I'd say a classical narrative or anything, but it feels much more tragic. The more real everything is and the more she put all she had into that car. So it really became a much higher trajectory and a much harder bullseye to hit. But that's ultimately why I'm super grateful for, for Zachary, because I may have led that trajectory, but, you know, but all the gaps in, in the puzzle, you know, I may have dumped all the puzzle pieces on the table and, you know, but there were a lot of pieces that were missing and, and, and kind of in that trajectory, Zachary helped kind of film, really help complete that, that puzzle or that picture of Liz Carmichael. Awesome. And so, Zachary, what, what was your process about being brought on to the project? And, you know, I, that's just something that reminds me of how when I was watching the series, it felt like it was kind of, you framed it in the first two episodes as if, you know, you're talking about Liz Carmichael's life um, before as this criminal on the run. And then once we get to the season three, then that's when we start getting the more human story of Liz Carmichael, the um, trans, uh, her, her being trans that just wasn't told that was exploited by media. So I want to know like both your thoughts, especially Zachary, about bringing, um, humanizing Liz Carmichael and kind of like the structure of how you guys did the series. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's interesting to Nick's point, the 
story beats of Liz's life as a criminal were always the broad strokes that her mm. story was told through. So it's like, you know, mafia, murder on yeah. the showroom floor, and these kinds of like sensationalized anchors. Um, but there was no nuance, there was no filling in those gaps. And ultimately, this story, uh, I mean, it, it, the the true crime elements of these of the of Liz's story are in my view kind of areas of opacity they were not areas that we had a tremendous amount of detail and ultimately it wasn't the story the story was that Liz was a complicated and flawed human being Mm -hmm. who you know did choose to live a life of crime and then um you know redeemed herself later in life but could never outrun the anti-trans bias of the media and ultimately her history always caught up to her Mm -hmm. um that has been true of so many trans and gender diverse people through throughout time throughout the history of media and to me, it was the human story of, of who Liz was and how her life was impacted by anti-trans bias and, and misogyny. Um, I came onto the project in 2019 once Nick had partnered with Duplass Brothers Productions and Jay Duplass, who I'd worked with on Transparent for years, called me with this story about Liz and I had never heard of her and I thought why who what you know like I was skeptical at first having a grasp of trans history and having never heard of Liz and in the end I realized that the insistence of a narrative about Liz that she was a man masquerading as a woman to commit a crime outlived her that it was so such a persistent notion that you almost wouldn't know that Liz was trans if you just went on what was out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was, you know, erased from, from trans history. And once the media was done exploiting her story, they, you know, threw, threw her out. Um, it's... A, staggering legacy to grapple with and getting to know Liz uh, over the past two years has broken open my own um, kind of perceptions of how a trans, a a view of trans people has been created over centuries. Great. And, you know, it just, it reminds me this, because I knew nothing, again, as well, I knew nothing about Liz Carmichael or even the Dale, um, but that's because I've never been particularly interested in cars. Um, but it was so interesting knowing about it, just especially because it's in Los Angeles and because Los Angeles is really a special place to me, but there's so much history there in LA and Liz Carmichael. Um, but then it goes deeper into talking about the history of um, trans people and, you know, stories like Liz Carmichael, Christine Jorgensen, and Billy Tipton that are often like erased. And I guess we both wanted to know your thoughts on why 
why media, mainstream media is so easily ready to forget and sanitize these stories. And I know also there's a movie coming out with uh, No Ordinary Man, I believe that um, about Billy Tipton um, and also your thoughts about how trans history and um, trans figures are in media are kind of shifting in representation um, today. Mm. You know, I think Liz's story, I think that we are resurrecting her. I think Liz is having a renaissance <laughs> and incredible. And then that there are so many figures whose names we don't know, whose stories mm -hmm. we have not discovered. To me, that's the most exciting discovery, uh, you know, that Liz has presented is just imagine how many folks are out there. Yeah. Um, we were never able to find a birth certificate for Liz or a death certificate. Mm -hmm. Similarly, in the last episode, we get into the story of Francis Thompson, Lucy Hicks Anderson, same for them all records of their existence were destroyed or disappeared by local municipalities. So there are ways in which administratively trans people are erased and yet because Liz had such media presence, it was impossible to erase her. She is there, mm -hmm. she is, and you know, she's uh, indelible. She, mm -hmm. the world will know her name. Um, her spirit persists because of the magic of film. Nick, what do you think? I, I completely agree with that. That you, anything I say would just be <laughs> trash compared to what you just said. <laughs> I mean, it's incredibly well said. I mean, there's, you, you reminded me immediately of how, well, two things. One, you know, Candy had mentioned how the family didn't even have a funeral and they didn't even put in an, an announcement or whatever in the paper because they didn't want to have the attention drawn to them because of Liz and it was just like which is like the saddest thing of all but like you can't even mourn you know, your mom properly because you think people are going to come out of the woodwork to attack you it's like the worst but then like also too I know I we I talked about this with Zachary in a prior occasion which is that like it was so hard to find anything I mean there were no court transcripts I kept finding the same five articles which is I mean it was like like I said, the first four or five years was co was coming up empty in a million places. Like, you know, uh, and people would be like, oh, she's on the Johnny Carson show. And then I would have relationships. I would build relationships with the underground tape trading market and, and find nothing. And just be like, oh, okay, well, it's got, she could be on this show, right? Nothing. And it'd be like, she's on Dick Cavett, right? Nothing. And then you would be like, okay, but there's a huge, you know, a huge newspaper that did this, right? Nope. It would, and then I was like, thinking, is like, is, I remember at one point, be like, does she even exist? Is this just like an urban legend or something? It was like, because you do, again, you see three pictures, one from the Motor Trend article, one from the other thing, and you, you would just see the same thing if you Google imaged it. And so I remember being very, very frustrated. And I remember one time, Zachary, you typed this on the train in New York, and I was like, why the hell can't I find anything? And you said to me, you were just like, well, trans history gets erased. And I remember that was so damning. I was like, oh, and I remember being <laughs> like, because I, Again, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much have blinders on all the time. I don't think about the reasons why things are happening. I just get around them. I just, will, I will move around the obstacle, whatever it is. And you just made me realize that in a second. I remember I was so crushed because I was just, because it was true. You realize like everything was just gone. And then to, you know, but like you said, to your point, it's like she, she persists to this day because of her personality or indomitable spirit is the reason why she's on film. The reason why, like, she went out there 
and put herself in front of the public, in front of the media, and, and said, you know, I'm Liz Carmichael, you know, I'm not going to say hear me roar, but that is, it, which is essentially out there on camera, be like, here I am, this is what I'm doing, like, and so she's, she's, she's on celluloid, you know, forever because of that, and we're so, I mean, it took us a lot of work. I remember Elizabeth Papensilva, our archival researcher, was looking in some college in Missouri, and they were like, yeah, here's eight hours of footage Liz Carmichael might be in about five minutes of this, and then Elizabeth had to go through like nine hours of footage just to find what was amounted to, I think, four minutes of footage of Liz, which I think that alone should tell you everything you need to know about how difficult this was and how long it took. I mean, it took, mm. it took dozens and dozens of people at the highest level in this business to pull her story back from the grave. Like, I mean, that's an immense amount of work because of someone's transphobia in the 1970s. It, and, you know, and to Zachary's point again, which is that like, um, you can't even imagine how many other stories don't have the resources to even to even save these stories because people didn't care. And it was, and I guess maybe I'll wrap this up because I talk way too long sometimes, which is that like, which is to, re I mentioned this before, which is like the only reason that that eBay auction even existed is because Walt Warren was the founding editor of Motor Trend. And he was the only one who followed Liz's story from the beginning to the end. He visited her in jail after she had been beaten. He went to the trial. Like, he had the pictures he he cataloged being, mm -hmm. yeah it, you know he cataloged everything i mean he had a genuine interest in her and he was the only one and and so when his stuff died it ended up at an estate sale went on ebay landed in my lap and i just carried the ball forward and if you think if he didn't care about her we're not having this conversation right now because one person cared and so, and it makes you realize on the flip side of that how many people didn't that it took, it, it really took one person to care about her and a genuine long form uh, in-depth interest in her, which I think is probably, I don't know, you know, make up your own mind on that one. But that's, but that's just a tough thing to sit with, I think. Well, yeah, that's, it's really impressive that, you know, so much was able to be built out of this one, you know, trove of information. It's, unfortunate, but it is impressive what came to be from that. And, you know, I think we want to talk about Liz a little bit more and just how, you know, she's portrayed in the docuseries. And, you know, I'm, I was just, I became a huge fan after watching her story told through this docuseries. And I think what a lot of people resonated with and what they loved about her is just, you know, how savvy and determined she was to become a success, you know, especially as a trans woman during her early cons between like before 20th century, you know, this was, you know, her way of trying to survive, you know, as an outsider, as being other in, you know, society and her life, even if she did not present that way during her early cons. But, you know, I really want to know what it was like really trying to balance telling the story of Liz and being authentic to who she is, you know, while also holding her accountable for, you know, what, you know, she's done in the past. And I think, you know, both of you really answered that earlier, you know, telling this human story of her because, you know, first and foremost, Liz is human and we can understand why, you know, she had to do the things that she did and, you know, the success that she was looking for in life. But I really wanted to know, you know, from your approach documenting it, what it was like trying to balance that. 
I think our job as filmmakers was to present facts and that Liz was held to account in her lifetime and that she served her time in prison um, and that her, her survival was hard won. Um, she is a beacon of, of resilience and of perseverance and tenacity. Um, there's so much to be inspired by in Liz's spirit. Um, and, you know, I think that we, we did a good job of presenting all of the perspectives and holding space for that complexity. Um, yeah, I, I think that I'm thrilled that viewers are able to learn Liz's story and to kind of evaluate all of all that's come since, all all of the things that Liz represents as a microcosm or an origin of the larger cultural phenomenon, the ways that you know, anti-trans bills are being, you know, proposed from state to state at this point. It is all, um, you know, an extension of something that destroyed uh, Liz's life in the 1970s. Yeah. What was your, what was your question? I, I, I feel like I lost the thread. Oh, no, no. Um, you answered it perfectly. You know, it was about, you know, I think you really got to the point there is that, you know, she was really held accountable in her life. You know, she served what she had. She endured what she had to. And, you know, she deserved her peace after what she went through. And so I think, you know, just bringing her story to life was, you know, just such a way to, you know, show, you know, she had to do what she had to to survive and she went through what she had to because of you know our society but yeah. you know it was finally being able to tell her story and i think that's the perfect balance yeah and i'll also throw out it also necessitates reading between the lines and filling in the blanks and realizing this person transitioned in the 1960s it was not an environment that was conducive <laughs> to you know crossing genders. Um, Liz had five children and a wife. I mean, she had seven people to provide for. And so you also have to, you know, extrapolate and stretch your imagination to realize that she had to big, go big. I mean, she, uh, yeah, you know, and presumably was hoping to put the past behind her to embark on, um, you know, something that had a shot at success and at changing the world. And to her dying day, she uh, insisted that she was going to make the car um, had she not been stopped. And um, I think one of the beautiful things about our series is that the car itself becomes a symbol for transness because of the ways in which um, trans people are always questioned and their identities contested in uh, the court of public opinion. Yeah. Um, so I also had a question that kind of goes more on the technical sides um, about use of animation. And I wanted to know, 
specifically um, why uh, you guys decided to use paper cut animation for some of the scenes. I absolutely loved it. It um, it really gave me that true crime vibe, and it was watching the paper cut animations. Um, um, even the ending of how you ended off the series uh, uh, with Liz and that animation style and like her going up to the stars. It was absolutely beautiful to me. And I wanted to know, um, it made the docuseries so unique in itself. And what was your process of choosing that animation style? And specifically, um, why you want to do, like, was it related to kind of the media and uh, vibe that you you're kind of getting with the 1970s. Um, if you can just expand on that a little bit more. We were, I mean, we were just thinking how would Liz tell her story? Mm -hmm. It would be, you know, like she would be using tracing paper. She wouldn't be drawing something directly or she would be cutting things out with jagged lines. It wouldn't be like smooth and it would not be digital at all. It would be very analog. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that was the framework was what kind of scrappy DIY style can we create where it's as if Liz was telling her own story? Nick, what do you think, a... Yeah, I, I, maybe, I, I would say, I remember our original schedule was like, this should, this should look like how they built the Dale, which would be the pieces of other cars. You know, it should very much be like you said, DIY. Mm -hmm. You know, especially considering Liz's, I think we talked about Liz's later life where she, it's not in the, the documentary with John Pedroza that talks about how he walked in one time and Liz was just, tracing and drawing engines uh, you know mm -hmm. at her desk still this is like in the you know this is like late 90s so that idea of like you said it's her world it's like uh you're you're yeah you're getting you're getting a viewpoint or magnifying lens and kind of zooming into what she would be thinking and doing at that time mm -hmm. yeah it's pretty cool yeah i absolutely loved it <laughs> i know it was one of our you know favorite stylistic choices for the stocky series and, um, you know, kind of shifting gears just a little bit, you know, because talking about, you know, the creation of the series and the look of it, as well as, you know, the production history. Um, you know, I love, Zachary, the way that you talk about Liz and you talk about her, you know, and the Dale, you know, symbolically. And so, you know, this question is for Nick here. You know, I, I'm very curious you know, going through all the history on the series, you know, how do you think the series focus would have changed had Zachary not been involved? You know, I would love to know the impetus behind, you know, bringing Zachary on board and what do you think the series would be had it not been for her involvement? Yeah, I guess my answer is probably like three-pronged. The first one being, I was producing this alone for the first, I don't know, it's all a blur, what, seven, eight, six seven eight years something like that where like I, it took every ounce of effort i had to literally just handle the court documents and the trial and like the rose business and the dale and like and the fbi files like it i was like completely stretched in there were points where i had to write my own court orders i think i had to write about 12 court orders just to, so it's i think it just gives you an air of the magnitude of this that like i would have gotten to liz's liz's life as a trans woman by like 2030 if at that point <laughs> the, the idea that that got, first of all, expedited was great. Secondly, you know, I don't know anyone I, I, outside of one person I, I, you know, that's close to me. I don't know many people, you know, either in the trans or the LGBT community. It just wasn't a, a part of my life. So the idea was like, just a crash course in the world that's going to make get me up to speed at that point. And I think, you know, thirdly, which is that like, that 
I always saw things through, I'm a white guy. Yeah, I'm going to see through things through a systematic storytelling like lens of like, okay, let's, I was so granular on every minute detail of Liz's life that like, with the more important thing being that there was no, there was no documentation on Liz's life as a trans woman. There was just nothing. I mean, there's one article that had diary entries. So for Zachary, it's like not only a trans historian, but not only a veteran producer, not only you know, someone in this business who knows, as, as you said to your very mention of like the, not the, the expansive scope of trans knowledge that you have in trans history is like, I'll never understand that. I'm, I don't have the lived experience of a trans woman and I don't want to speculate or speak for Zachary, but I can tell you that like viewing it from the other side of that coin is like, was, was the most immensely valuable thing in the entire world. I, I mean, the level and scope of knowledge that Zachary brought. I, I have all the respect in the world for Zachary's patience with me of like, why is that happening? What is this? You know, it was, you can only read so many books, but Zachary got me up to speed on a level where I really, I'm really am grateful for Zachary's kindness and patience with me of getting me up to speed on what it would, what it was like to live as a trans woman in the 1970s. I mean, she would say something and I'd go run off to read a book about it. And I felt like I, I probably did that every week. There's another <laughs> thing and I'd go run off and read another book, you know, and it was, but I really do believe, and I do mean this, that like Zachary humanized Liz. I think I, I was, I think by the very nature of how hard this was, I became a plot oriented person. And Zachary by our very nature is an incredible storyteller and really humanized Liz. Mm -hmm. I don't think we would have humanized Liz. I think you, I think it, I think it would have, I think, gotten there but I really do believe that like Zachary is the reason why why Liz is such an incredible character because well I wasn't dreaming about Liz the way that the, uh, the way everyone was manifesting Liz uh, um, I think the way Zachary can maybe attest to but like I said I think it I think we, it, the way I, I don't know in my head it's like this that's the way I have it in my head it's like plot oriented and character oriented and we were we came at it from from two different completely different spaces and I think that like that to me was like such a such an amazing collaboration. Agreed and I think all this the- was definitely haunting my dreams <laughs> <laughs> for months on end. Sorry I don't want to put you on the spot Zach. <laughs> um, I was just gonna say I think all the people you brought on the Talking Heads um, in the docuseries also um, gave more humanization to Liz and gave more insight for instance like bring on Mia Yama Yamamoto, um, the legal perspective was really great to me. Um, and then the historian perspective with Susan Stryker and then Sandy Stone. And I just really loved all the figures that you brought in um, into this series. And I just wanted to say that. Thank you. They really stand in for Liz in a way. I mean, they can speak mm -hmm. to the trans experience, um, each from their own different perspectives and fields mm -hmm. of expertise. But to me, they, together become a kind of trans presence, a trans voice for, for Liz, who's no longer alive to speak for herself. Mm -hmm. um, so thank God for them. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. We're, yeah, we love seeing them, you know, become a part of the series and to really, you know, give a lot of backstory and, you know, a lot of understanding, especially of the time. And Zachary, this is, you know, something that, um, you know, we found out about you that a lot of your influences come from New Queer Cinema, which 
is something that, you know, both Lena and I are very passionate for. And um, we wanted to know if you view Liz as someone who embodies the narrative of a new queer cinema film, you know, that transgressive, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Are you kidding? I mean, new queer (laughs) cinema is totally anti-role model. Mm -hmm. I mean, every protagonist in new queer cinema is law and and is as is true for all of literature the whole i mean oedipus rex is not a one-dimensional role model character and if you know if he was it wouldn't be (laughs) oedipus rex right so uh you know somebody was evoking uh gabby you know as as a kind of liz carmichael too it's liz carmichael is an incredible protagonist I mean she has all of the all of the shades and colors that frustrate you inspire you she kind of gets under your skin I mean to me this process was really wrestling with the restless spirit of Liz Carmichael (laughs) for two years and being like uh yeah kind of finding her through the ether um yeah what was, your, what was your question one more time? You're you're just asking. Oh, new queer cinema. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, yes, yes. Liz is, and uh, as an artist, as as uh, a person who's felt my whole life as an outsider and coming of age as a trans person years, decades before the trans tipping point, um, I have. I think a, a more nuanced view of, of transness in a way, or a view that's informed by all of those years of navigating a hostile world, a world that's hostile towards uh, gender diversity. And being uh, so close and having contact with so many people who had stakes in apprehending Liz, uh, put me in touch with what she was up against. Yeah. Hearing some of these subjects whose views had not changed in 50 years, mm-hmm. it gave me a very up-close view of um, the, the challenges and obstacles that, that she faced. Mm-hmm. And speaking, um, jumping on that, specifically on some of those uh, figures that were in the docuseries like Dick Carlson, um, again, I really love the way you guys paralleled um, the editing style in the series between having Dick Carlson's dialogue um, mirror um, Liz Carmichael's and then in the last episode having Dick Carlson and then his son Tucker Carlson um, speaking to each other. I just really loved um, how you were setting that up and in a way how you were critiquing mainstream media and news media, uh, mainstream news media on covering uh, trans individuals and trans lives and you know in you know journalism is either seen as an ex uh, you know a search for justice and truth or you know yellow journalism you know exploitation you know and I wanted to know like would you say that the news coverage if you can just dive a little bit more on this about Liz Carmichael went from if you think it went from a credible criminal investigation to just one that was just complete sensationalism once uh, Liz was revealed to be trans and you know was I know it was stated in the 
a documentary. Um, it was, I think it was implied that that was Dick Carlson's um, a whole reason why he followed the story in the first place. And if you, both of you yeah. can give me some more insight of um, your, um, on that. Yeah, I guess maybe I'll jump in, which is that like, there were certain things like in documents where certain things happened uh, it's hard. There's so many examples, but like there's certain things in like the jury foreman's notebooks that when you read certain things and you realize, well, wait, what happened to that exhibit that suddenly was existed. And then the, and then you go back and you check the timeline of it and you realize that about the time that she was outed, suddenly those files are gone that existed before them. So there's like evidence actually missing. And if you put the pieces together, it, I remember one time I was like, there was a night where I was just going through stuff and I was like, well, wait a minute. And I was like flipping through and I was trying to organize it. And then I realized, well, it existed here and it was in the custody of them. And then suddenly it goes to trial and that stuff is missing. And you realize it's a, it, in, in between there is where Liz is outed. And so, and so when you are, there's just a few things like that where I noticed that stuff was done a different way or suddenly they would be, uh, Ron Abrams talked about this in one of his, in, 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 in his interview that he did, he said that, that the moment Liz was revealed or outed, you know, as, uh, or had been, uh, I, yeah, I'd say outed. she, uh, all of a sudden the prosecutors, the number of prosecutors doubled on the case or something like that. It was something like six prosecutors got added to the case, which is like crazy. Like the number of prosecutors and also the amount of money that went into the investigation. I think Jerry Banks mentions it was like the, the amount of money that went into the investigation, I think doubled or tripled or something like that. Suddenly when it was re revealed to be the case, and I would, I would volley it over to Zachary, I think, at this point. But I think the thing about Carlson saying the reason he did that investigation is linking Liz's transits to her being a criminal or, or being furtive or hiding something. I think certainly, I, I'm kind of, I think I can kind of volley it over at that point. Yeah, I mean, you know, Dick Carlson was a journalist for a decade. He went on, or I guess more than a decade, um, he went on to work for the Reagan administration and all the while raising Tucker Carlson, who takes the mantle of creating his own anti-trans platform. The story of Liz and Dick in 1975 and 76 is a humble microcosm for what has become a global conversation around trans identities. I I think when Dick first arrives in our story, he's asking pertinent questions. It seems like uh, overdue that somebody is holding Liz to account. <laughs> and then when it is revealed that he's motivated by an anti-trans bias, mm -hmm. um, and you know, I think it ultimately discredits his, his integrity, but he certainly has way more integrity than his son, who is, you know, in an opinion, you, know, you can't call what Tucker Carlson does journalism. Um, it's like an opinion-based populist uh, kind of uh, endless, <laughs> there's no curiosity in what Tucker Carlson is doing. It's very strategic and he's often not asking questions um, out of curiosity. He's just mm -hmm. trying to arrive at a point that he's already decided and mm -hmm. pandering to a low common denominator, which is people's resistance to a modernizing world. I mean, 
um, and it's, you know, a, a national quandary at this point. How do we reconcile that divide that's been created over the past few decades of, of you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, I think to follow up with that and, you know, just hearing about your experiences with interviewing Dick Carlson, you know, I'm sure it was very challenging to, you know, interview and have those conversations with him and, you know, his legacy, his son's legacy, you know, you know, what was it like, you know, interviewing a lot of these individuals that, you know, criminalize and victimize Liz during her trial, you know, you sadly handled Dick Carlson, but, you know, it would be a real challenge to maintain integrity knowing, you know, about this prejudice against her, you know, not necessarily because of her business practices, if that was the case at first, but for her being trans. And what has the response been from a lot of these people that, you know, have been a part of this, that have been interviewed, that, you know, still hold those sentiments? Like, what has the response been the dialogue have what has that been like since the lady in the dale has aired oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you go for it no i was just i was just gonna say when you're sitting when you're sitting there i was gonna say a chair but i think i was sitting on a grip box for a couple of those interviews but like when you're sitting there i remember one moment where i was like just let it pass through you <laughs> because if you give any sense any inkling that you have any opinion about what they've said, it's like you could literally just like, you could spoil the whole thing. And I remember one time, one thing he said, one thing, I was a he, I was like one thing that was said by an interview subject, I remember I was like, just let it pass, just go right through you, go right through you. And then I was like, okay, okay, I think it's gone. And then I was like, okay. And then I just went to the next question because I remember being like, oh, holy crap. I look one of the things that was said, and that was a little bit harder when you're conducting the interview because you have to keep a straight face and be like, "This isn't affecting me in any way. I'm just, I'm just a, a I'm just a person. A, I'm just a person speaking to you right now, and I have no opinion and I showed no favoritism. But like, there are some things that really make really make you sit back and take a second and go like, "How far have we actually come?" Mm -hmm. It's it. I feel like. There's times where yeah. there's like a delta between you're like sometimes you're like yeah and then other times you're like yeah <laughs> and it's yeah that's yeah I mean we were witnessing how how you know how much things could actually stand still through time I mean we were witnessing how people's views could literally be stuck in 1975 and not change at all I think we were a witness to a kind of stagnation that is toxic um and you can be in a in the room with a tiger without it biting you i think that it's a lesson you know for for everybody that you can sit in a room with a person <laughs> whose opinion is different than yours and be okay that like safety is a feeling that you create within yourself and being your own anchor that you can find other people's views depressing or um, irritating or you know any number of things without letting it define you. I think that mm. trans and gender diverse people know that so well. We um, retain our agency to self-define 
despite a world that would like to define us differently and um, you know that will attempt to legislate against us, silence us, kill us, and um, yet we persist. And nothing will stop us from being born into this world. So to me, you know, I'm doing work in Liz's legacy and you know we and I'm not alone you know I'm one of many trans and non-binary people in culture today who are um, walking in those footsteps who are standing on the shoulders of those people who sacrifice everything and it's just staggering sometimes to really grapple with what people had to go for us to get here that's that's so true and you know i think speaking to an earlier question that you had bridged about you know trying to find some commonality you know trying to you know bring that divide and you know minimize it and bring us together you know i would love to know about some of the reactions from you know it doesn't have to be specific interactions oh, yeah. since the premiere and since the series but for some of those subjects that still hold those beliefs, have we seen any shift in their beliefs? Have we seen that there can be some type of, you know, understanding and people really changing their beliefs on what they previously held, you know, specifically about trans and um, gender diverse individuals and about Liz as well. Have we seen any change in the type of reactions from those subjects since the premiere? No. That's what I was afraid of. I was like, one. Uh, I, Go for it. If that's a victory, that's no. I was going to say, um, the, I was going to say, Candy had some. Uh, people, it was her, uh, one of her, I won't go into names, but she said, uh, and the family member who was like, who was very, um, I guess, ashamed or embarrassed about Liz Carmichael and did not want to have anything to do with, the, they were on a separate side of the family. And so they didn't, they wanted nothing to do with, um, with Liz or that I guess they felt that it maybe a tarnished their side of the family just by, by association with Liz. And apparently Candy had tried to organize a, a family reunion and involved this person and they did not, that side of the family did not want to be involved. But after the series came out, they said that they had reconsidered everything that they had thought about Liz and realized that they didn't understand fully what was going on. And they, and they said that they had, they, they realized so many positive things about Liz's life that, it, that actually came to reconcile um, a, a significant portion of those two sides of the family. And so they've since reconnected um, because of that in a very positive way. Uh, but that's the only one I can think of. <laughs> and it happens one at a time. That's beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's actually really beautiful. And uh, yeah, we haven't seen any movement otherwise. I mean, um, I, you know, I'll, yeah, I'll just leave it there. Um, I was just going to say, but like, uh, you know, knowing that um, that person reconciled their views, um, I think that's just what's so important about telling uh, these types of stories, giving a platform for, um, you know, trans and gender queer individuals that 
you know, are often seen in media um, in both like the fictional and like the historical sense. And I think that's what, why the Lady in the Dale is just so um, important and so great um, to have and to view as both as a document of trans history and, you know, just representation as well. And yeah, and then, and then uh, moving towards, I guess, I think we're on kind of down to our last few questions. Um, I have one question about, uh, that's kind of like a weird question. Like, do you think if Liz Carmichael had more time that we would still be seeing the Dale on the streets of today? Um, do you think um, if it would have been successful? Um, what are your thoughts on just on the Dale and stuff? Uh, if do you think it was possible that it was going to be out in the streets today if, uh, you know, that one engineer didn't purposely uh, tip it over? Yeah. Uh, I guess my immediate reaction would be like, there's that old saying, being early is just as bad as being late. And mm -hmm. I feel like she was, I think she was a couple decades early, I think, to match where if she maybe were a couple of decades later with the Dale, I feel like they probably would have put the Dale out as a car, like to be like, well, it didn't work now, but how about right now? They would have like yeah. reissued it as some kind of nostalgia thing. Mm -hmm. or, like, or it might've gotten off the ground in it, you know, and if she had hit the eighties, the excess of eighties, you know, who knows if maybe more money, more capital would have come in or, you know, or something like that. It's, it feels like there are different avenues or, or there's different points of access for her to maybe succeed in the time period where maybe the 70s might, might not have been fully to that strength. But it certainly feels like, who knows, she could have learned from people like Malcolm Bricklin or other comparative filmmakers, or filmmakers, or other comparative automakers at that time. So you have, you know, she probably could have learned the tactics. I know that she followed the DeLorean case pretty closely as it was going mm -hmm. on. That was 80, I think 82, 83. So like, you know, she was very compelled by that. So who knows if she might have learned because DeLorean was really only, well, I don't want to make a defense for John DeLorean, but, you know, trying to raise enough money for a car. It's like, it's a difficult and it's a, it's a problematic venture to begin with because of how fraught with peril it really is and how difficult it is to build a car. But like, who knows if that history might have helped her along the way. You know, maybe she started a little bit later or she could have learned from, I mean, she was clear how much she had learned in the automobile field anyway, you know, when she started building the Dale, but the fact that she had started maybe a little bit later or had more time to learn from other uh, automakers, maybe she could have developed something that had stayed the course and ultimately come to fruition. And just yesterday, there was an article about a three-wheeled car that's going to market cur currently that's solar wow. power that's covered in solar panels and that oh. concept also started in the 1950s so there really is no telling how long these ideas take i think mm -hmm. leslie kendall from the peterson automotive museum makes a great point that liz in a span of a few months tried to do what detroit has been mm -hmm. working on for decades um it's hard yeah it's, it's hard to parse out the alternate versions of how things could have been um but one thing is for sure, you know, Liz did not have a fair shot and yeah. Liz had not run a company before like she had claimed and it was a confluence of, of many things that led to the downfall of the deal. Um, I just find it, it would be interesting after with the Lady in Dale if someone decides to try to recreate the Dale again. That's a great and then 
Yeah, th- th- there, there's actually a great update to the story that Nick can tell. Yeah. I felt like that look sufficed, but um, <laughs> and now I, I, we ended up well, not we. Uh, all the credit goes to Elizabeth Pepin Silva, our archival researcher. But she, while looking up different archival stuff for the Dale, she found a picture someone posted on Instagram of a shell of a blue Dale. And Candy had always heard that it was a rumor that it never existed, but. I was pretty adamant that there was a Blue Dale that existed at some point because it's in the footage, mm-hmm. KBC footage, for like a half a second. But apparently it was, uh, somebody w- went looking for Ford parts in Palmdale in some guy's junkyard and found a shell of a Blue Dale car. And then they took a picture and put it on Instagram. And then about a, and it took us, took Elizabeth and I about, about a year to, to, to get a hold of this person because we had to navigate through a network of people to find this person and uh and then once we did we, and then there's a pin then the pandemic happened but eventually the long story short is we got a hold of the blue dale and uh and i ended up buying it and i gave it to nathan candy son as a gift um and so he took it back he actually came out here two weekends ago and they uh and then they ended up coming out for the weekend and they picked up the blue dale and nathan drove it back to louisiana so he's gonna build it with his kids He's actually going to build it as a real car. And he said in his words to prove that Mamma was correct. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> amazing follow-up story as well. See that yeah. blue Dale on the streets. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's, he's pretty adamant. He was like, I'm going to drive it back to Los Angeles. And he was like, you probably shouldn't do that. Uh, but he, that's his goal. He said he's going to try and he said he wanted to build it and shuttle it back out to Los Angeles so he could drive it down the Ventura Boulevard for everyone to see. <laughs> wow. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, and then I guess our last question is, um, are there any future projects or um, queer media that you both are currently working on? I know like Nick earlier before call you were talking about writing a script, but um, I don't know if there's anything else that you want to talk about or promote right now about what you're working on. I'm um, working on nothing at all. I'm never gonna make it anything ever again. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I got got a few tricks up my sleeve still. I got another uh, 20 years or so of making work and I'm gonna keep doing it. (laughs) We'll always be here and excited to anticipate those things. Yes. Thank you. And then we have my feature script I was telling you about before the camera camera, which I, I probably shouldn't talk about yeah. The, yeah, for the, for, it's a black comedy with period piece and uh, yeah and that's I mean that's like that, that's all all that research time it's just just months and months it's just the one project because it's so vast that it just it probably take me another four to six months just to get it to get a good draft together. Nick loves deep dives. Yeah effectively I don't I <laughs> Yeah, it's a well, it's a bio. Yeah, I was gonna say it is a biopic, so there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, decades worth of working and researching. Well, we can't. We look forward to seeing it, so we can't wait. So we'll be keeping our eyes off of that, and you know everything that the both of you are going to be planning to do. So honestly, you know, just thank you both so much for you know sitting down and speaking with us and discussing Liz and the Dale and just this entire journey and her story it's it's been wonderful Mm -hmm. so thank you 
yeah, yeah. 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 My heart. thank you so much thank yeah, you thank all you. thanks for watching and thanks for supporting yeah it means a lot and like you know best of luck to, to both of you <laughs>